Ahmed and I met each other seemingly by chance on a train to Hawthorne. Uh, we got chatting. He's a Muslim from Oman. I'm a Christian from Australia. And we had this fascinating conversation about our respective beliefs. We arranged to catch up over coffee uh, a little later and talk, talk more. I was really interested to learn about his culture and traditions, all the ways that he's seeking to serve Allah, including, I suspect, by trying to convert me. I think that's what was going on. Um, so that he can be judged as righteous and receive his reward on that final day. As we got up to leave from our coffee, I was a bit taken aback though. Uh, All my best efforts to offer to to pay, even for my own coffee, let alone his, were rebuffed and he absolutely insisted on paying for our drinks. There was no way he was going to let me pay anything. I eventually relented, feeling uh, pretty sheepish. I muttered a quiet thank you and made vague promises about paying next time. But I walked away with lots of questions. What did it mean culturally for me to accept his generosity? Should I have kept insisting to pay? Should I feel bad for allowing him to cover my drink? Uh, Was I honouring him by accepting his gift or was I humiliating myself by receiving his charity? Should I have made a bigger deal of of saying thank you? I I wasn't quite sure. In the culture I've been raised in, we value independence and self-sufficiency, so maybe I'm just a bit weird about accepting generosity. Is it one of my cultural hang-ups? Was it a cross-cultural kind of miscommunication, a bit of both? I wasn't totally sure. But this question of what to do when you've received a generous gift, far more generous than a free hot beverage, not a coffee in my case, uh, this is the question that motivates us in today's passage and in fact motivates this whole series, this whole section of Romans that we're looking at, Romans 12 to 16. Uh, Like Ali took us through, the first 11 chapters of this letter from the Apostle Paul are focused on God's generous and gracious gift to an undeserving people. Eternal salvation. It's the greatest gift you could get. This is the the mercy of God that's in view there uh, in the first verse. And so, brothers and sisters, like verse 1 says, in view of God's mercy, how will we respond? How will we respond? Uh, Will you, like me, say a sheepish thank you, make vague promises to to be good and do the right thing next time and carry on like it never really happened? Shall we try to repay God? Pay him back for his kindness to us? It's kind of that classic question though, isn't it? Uh, At Christmas time, what present do you buy for the person who has everything? Or in this case, what present do you give to the God who gave you everything? What gift can we possibly offer? And yet to do nothing, to to not respond, would surely be the rankest ingratitude. At the very least, this mercy must transform us, renew us, make us new. We must have a new attitude towards God. We can't keep treating him as an enemy like earlier parts of Romans talk about. We can't keep ignoring him after such mercy. Secondly, we we see ourselves in a new light in this passage. Our attitude to ourself is renewed. New attitude to God, new attitude to ourself, and so thirdly, our attitude towards one another, to our fellow sons and daughters of God, is transformed. Uh, So that's where we're going today as we try to 
humbly and gratefully respond to God's generous gift. A new attitude of worship towards God in verse 1 and 2, a new attitude of humility uh, about ourselves, a new attitude of service towards others. Well, let's start uh, in verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Uh, Now, to really get the full uh, extent of this image, we need to imagine for a moment that we're first century Romans. Uh, You can imagine yourself as a a pagan, a a Gentile. You can imagine yourself as a a God-worshipping Jew. But either way, uh, you will be familiar with the offering of animal sacrifices. We would know what it is to stand by as a lamb or a bull is led to the altar, a spotless, perfect animal, not just a dud, perfect one. The priest lays hands on it, slaughters it, the blood flows and then the carcass is burnt up as an offering, maybe along with prayers for a a happy marriage or a successful harvest. The animal's whole life and being are offered up in an attempt to to please the God of whatever temple we're in. Uh, This, of course, is a dead sacrifice, right? The the animal is killed. Paul riffs off this idea. He says we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so there are some key differences here. And the first biggest difference is that we're not trying to get God's favour or blessing. because we already enjoy God's mercy. His spirit lives in us. We have peace with him already. This sacrifice is a response of thanks and gratitude. It's a recognition that if Christ has offered his life for us, then offering our lives to him is the only true and proper response. Secondly, it's also different because we are a living sacrifice. We're not slaughtered. We actually find life as we offer ourselves to God. Uh, Yes, we have died to sin. In that sense, we are dead. But now we're alive to Christ, living sacrifices, serving him. Uh, The evangelist D.L. Moody apparently said that the problem with a living sacrifice, though, is that it keeps crawling off the altar. The problem with a living sacrifice, it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's the hard thing about being a living sacrifice. You can't just set and forget. Each day, each hour, we're called to continually offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. That means I'm no longer in charge of my own life. My body is not my own. I belong to God. I'm totally devoted to God. I offer myself to him, holy and pleasing to him. It says, particularly we offer our bodies, not simply our spirit or our mind or our ideas. I talked about this a bit last month in our Church for Life series and you can catch up on that online if you missed. But let's just acknowledge for a second that this sounds uh, really demanding, possibly dangerous, certainly restrictive if we entrust ourselves entirely to God. Friends, there's also freedom in it. There's freedom in it because we're living to please God and so we're not living to please others. 
so we're not a slave to their opinion of us. Other people might think we're great or they might judge us. But our life is not about pleasing them. It's about pleasing God. And so there's freedom from being a slave to the opinions of others. On the other hand, we're not leaving to please ourselves either. So we're no longer a slave to our own desires. Our world would tell us that if our preferences are frustrated, if we can't get what we want or desire, then our lives can't be fulfilling. We're we're deficient. But if we're living to please God, not ourselves, then even if our preferences are frustrated, even if we can't get what we want, we still have meaning, we still have a purpose to pursue because God is the only one we desire to please. And of course, he's already pleased with us. He's already pleased with us. He delights in us because he delights in Christ and we share in Christ's righteousness. And because our Heavenly Father delights in us in a circular kind of way, so we delight to delight him as well. Uh, Think for a moment about your favourite teacher at school. My favourite teacher was Ms Walker. Uh, We got on really well. Uh, She always encouraged me and looked out for me. Um, I knew that she she valued me. She encouraged me. She helped me to, to do my best. Did that make me take her for granted? No, it actually brought out the best in me. It made me want to please her all the more because I knew she was already pleased with me. Now, God's love is far deeper, far more unconditional than any teacher. And if we take it for granted, well, perhaps we haven't uh, fully grasped just how amazing it is. Perhaps we haven't taken it to heart that God loves you personally. On the other hand, if we begin to fathom the depth and height and width of God's love for us in Christ, if we grasp that Christ gave his life a sacrifice to death for us, then living to please him, offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, is the only logical response. It's our true and proper worship. Uh, There are lots of different ways that this could be applied in our lives, right? Offering our bodies as living sacrifices is going to affect and change every area of our life, from our relationships to our work, our home life and recreation, our politics, how we disagree, And we're going to see more of this over the next few weeks as we go on in Romans. But before that, Paul focuses on how we view ourselves in verse 3. A new attitude of humility towards ourself. So we're going to look at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So this is about self-worth and self-esteem, also about pride. We know the dangers of egotistical leaders, people who are in authority who are selfish and self-focused. So what is this about? What, What might give us an inflated view of ourselves, make us think more highly of ourselves? Well, maybe we're basing our self-worth on our achievements and we're doing pretty well. 
work is successful, your boss is happy with your performance, so your self-worth is sky high. Maybe family life is going well. The kids are doing really well, we're proud of them. And when you get a moment, well, we're quietly pretty pleased with our efforts as parents as well. Maybe you're just a good person. You do the right thing by others, honest, reliable, always happy to help. You do the right thing. And of course, each of these are are good things, aren't they? Work, parenting, moral living, these are good things and if they're going well, praise God. But they're not the standard for us to judge ourselves by. The scripture says, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So what does this mean? It could mean that God has given a different amount of faith to each of us, couldn't it? And those with lots of faith can be a bit more proud and those with less faith, well, we just need to be a bit more humble about it. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because faith is faith, even if it's as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says. And Paul's whole point here is to undermine pride, not to encourage some and discourage others in it. And I think that's why he appeals to the faith here. Because the faith of Christ, the faith that hopes in the gospel, actually pulls the rug out from under any sense of entitlement and pride that we might have. We don't measure ourselves by how much faith we have. We measure ourselves by what the faith says about us. What does the gospel say about us? Well, back in chapter 3, Paul pointed out that all are sinful. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. Jews and Gentiles alike, all under the power of sin. No one has a leg to stand on when it comes to boasting. We have all offended God. The gospel is the great leveller. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Our faith is in Christ's work for us. This is the good news. His death on the cross for our sin. Our works can never save us, but Christ's work can, and it has. We may all be humbled by our sin, but we are all equally exalted, lifted up by the righteousness that God has given us through faith in Christ. And so chapter 3 goes on, where then is boasting? It is excluded if you've been saved as a gift from God, not because of your efforts, but because of God's free mercy and love, there's nothing to boast about for ourselves, is there? So this is our new attitude of humility in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of us. The gospel becomes the standard for how we view ourselves and this is wonderful for our self-worth. Yes, it guards us against pride and thinking too highly about ourselves because we're saved by grace but it also guarantees our self-worth because the gospel assures us that God knows the worst of us. He knows we don't measure up and he loves us to death. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. As Tim Keller is fond of saying, the gospel says we are more sinful than we ever dared admit and more loved than we ever dared imagine. So now, rather than uh, starting from a position of saying, 
I'm a good person. I'm talented and strong and resilient and that's the basis for my self-worth. Rather than starting from that position because even if those things are true, we might find them hard to believe if we're struggling, we face a setback, we do the wrong thing. What about those of us for whom they simply aren't true? What if I'm not a good person? What if I'm not especially talented or strong or resilient? The Gospel says, whoever you are, whatever you can or can't do, in Christ you are loved deeply, profoundly and eternally. Let that soak in for a moment. You are deeply loved in Christ. You are valuable to God. This is the the humbling and uplifting reality if we're in Christ. The guarantee of our self-worth, it's our new attitude towards ourselves. And it gives us a healthy base for a renewed attitude towards others. We don't need to compare or rank ourselves but we can rejoice in the beautiful diversity of God's gifts. This is the third new attitude. Uh, As verse 4 says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. It's a bit of an assault on self-ownership this morning, isn't it? Not only are we devoted to God, so we're not our own, but now we belong to each other, so we're not independent. We're bound together in Christ. This means our unity is based on the fact that we're all in Christ. Whatever our differences uh, there might be between us because of gender or sexuality or colour or race or ability, we are more deeply united because we are in Christ. We are one body in Christ. And so we express our unity through serving one another in love. Because as it says, he's given each of us different gifts. Uh, He lists some of the gifts, not all, but some gifts here. Some of us have the gift of serving. Ian and Vaughan and others are here at 8.30 in the morning moving tables and chairs to serve us by setting up. Helen and Samuel and Marla might be serving us morning tea after the service. They exercise the gift of serving. Some have the gift of encouraging. Uh, Nat and Alex out there welcoming us at the front gate this morning. You say hi and offer us a smile. Others encourage us by praying for us after the service. Some exercise leadership and teaching in small groups, in children's ministry in music and service leading. Now we know the dangers of leadership that is unprincipled, misguided, self-focused. So Paul reminds those of us who lead to always do so with diligence. Uh, There's more to say about the gift of prophecy than I can probably fit in here. So come and chat to me afterwards if you want to talk about the gift of prophecy. Others show mercy by contributing to the needs of others. Some make meals for those of us going through stressful times, contribute to the food bank, 
tutoring on the Carlton housing estates. There are lots of ways to show mercy. And because we're a body, we mustn't take each other for granted. We need to show up for one another. We need to show up for one another because your service makes a difference. Each member of the body has a different function. Each member makes a difference. And your showing up is an encouragement to others. Your uh, presence is an act of love that makes a difference. And as in any body, not all of us are working full tilt all at once. It's quite normal that some members are resting while others are working because we all have different functions and only sometimes, only rarely perhaps, might we all be working all at once. So we're not to enslave one another in acts of service either. No, rather, we offer ourselves in service. We offer ourselves proactively in service. Firstly to God and then to each other. Not because we must. Not because God won't love us otherwise. No, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices because Christ offered himself to die as a sacrifice for us. And this gospel transforms us. It renews our mind and our attitudes. So sure, say a sheepish thank you if you must. But whatever we do, let's not carry on like nothing has happened. Let's be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible uh, gift that you've given us in Christ. Thank you that we don't need to work and strive and uh, build up our righteousness because you give it to us in Christ. Thank you that we can be assured that we are your children and from that freedom we can offer ourselves to serve you and serve one another. Please continue to transform us through the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, Amen.